Now, before I read the passage, I want to set the stage in a couple different ways. First, um, I want us to think about how sometimes you have to jump around a bit if you want to figure out what the author of a passage is trying to say. We saw that last week when we looked at verses 11 to 18. I actually started us off with verse 17. There is now forgiveness. Then move to verse 18. If there's now forgiveness, then no other offering for sin is needed. Before jumping to verses 11 to 14 to say there no other offering for sin is needed because Christ made the one sacrifice. Now, if you don't remember uh, any of that, then you could uh, listen to that sermon again. But the basic point for tonight is that Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25 is nothing like that. It is as straightforward as you could possibly imagine. In some sense, it is a preacher's dream. In verses 19 to 21, we're going to see that the author tells us what we know, and he does that to exhort us to do things in verses 22 to 25. You can't get more straightforward than Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25. And what we're going to see in a moment here is that we have access to God. That's in verses 19 and 20. That we have a great advocate, a great priest in the house of God. That's verse 21. And then, as I said, our author doesn't merely want us to rest in the armchair of intellectual knowledge. He wants us to do something. And so he gives us three exhortations. Draw near, verse 22. Hold fast, verse 23. And consider how, verses 24 and 25. Also, this is just, this is, I mean, such a... A a preamble deserves a constitution. But before I read the passage, I want you to see how, whereas sometimes in the book of Hebrews, he addresses his audience and excludes himself. My favorite is probably Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, where he says, you have become dull of hearing. Whereas he does that occasionally in Hebrews, at this moment, he includes himself With his audience. Notice how heartwarming that is. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we have a great priest. When it comes time for exhortation, it's not you draw near. It's let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Well, let's do just that. Let us consider Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have confidence to enter the holy places because of the blood of Jesus. Thank you that he is our great priest in the house of God. Oh, Lord, may we draw near to you with a true heart and full assurance of faith, holding fast the confession of our hope because you who promised are faithful. And may we consider now how to stir up one another to love and good works. And may you give us a taste of heaven. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the tax-free farm. They actually called a particular plot of land the tax-free farm. I think most of us would be pleased to have our residences with that name. Oh, go to the Bruce's house. They're the tax-free farm. But to visit it, you would have to have lived in Athens in the 6th century B.C. Now, I learned about the tax-free farm that existed 2,600 years ago because an American missionary purchased an old papyrus text in Egypt in 1890. And that text turned out to contain the lost Athenian constitution, the constitution of the Athenians, written either by Aristotle or by one of his disciples. And in chapter 16 of that work, we learn about the tax-free farm. Pisistratus was tyrant of Athens in the 6th century B.C., And though he was called a tyrant, Aristotle, or one of his students, says that his administration was very temperate, almost more like a a constitutional government than a tyranny. Evidence of this benevolent uh, government, the tax rate was just 10%, one-tenth of one's produce. Additionally, Pisistratus, this tyrant, actually made forays into the countryside to settle disputes between farmers because he wanted the court of justice to come to them so if there was a dispute, they didn't have to leave their crops and enter the city. And it was during one of these jaunts in the countryside, or so the story goes, that the tax-free farm was born. And here's how Aristotle, or one of his students, tells the story. Pisistratus had his adventure with the man of Hymettus, who is cultivating the spot afterwards known as Tax-Free Farm. He saw a man digging and working at a very stony piece of ground and being surprised. He sent his attendant to ask what he got out of the plot of land. Aches and pains, said the man, And that's what Pisistratus ought to get a tenth of. Well, the man spoke without knowing who his questioner was. But Pisistratus was so pleased with his frank speech 
and his industry that he granted him exemption from all taxes, hence tax-free farm. Now, it's a great story, but you may wonder why I'm telling it. Well, when Aristotle, or one of his students, tells us that Pisistratus was so pleased with his frank speech, the word used here for frank speech is the same word that the author of Hebrews uses in chapter 10, verse 19, when he says, we have confidence before God. The author saying here that we can speak frankly before God in the holy place and places in heaven itself. And this word that's used here, it's also used in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, is the word that characterized what the ancient Athenians took to be their privilege, freedom of speech. Hebrews is saying that we have that same freedom, that same confidence before God. We can speak boldly, openly, and frankly. And the author of Hebrews gives us the reason why. The blood of Jesus, right there at the end of verse 19. And notice that the blood of Jesus is not what we bring with us into heaven. As A.V. Davison notes, if we enter the holy places with the blood of Jesus, then we'd be yet another kind of priest trying to make our way to God. But on the contrary, as we saw last week in verses 11 to 18, no amount of priestly work, even daily work, can do it. Instead, we must enter heaven by the blood of Jesus. His blood, verse 21, is a new and living way. It's new because Jesus was the first to walk it. And this word new is not the normal word for new. It's actually a word that means freshly slaughtered, freshly killed. And so it's a hint, a kind of poetic hint here of the way that we get to heaven. It's his blood, his death, his cross. But notice that the way is not called the dead way. It's called the living way. Because the one who was slaughtered is alive and because the road that he was the first to walk is the road to eternal life. Now, it's also a way through the curtain, verse 20. And we should be reminded here of uh, Mark chapter 15 and verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And Mark tells us what happens in the next verse. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple curtain separated the Lord from his people. And Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, opened up the way to heaven. We have access, verse 20, through 
his flesh. But it's not just that we have access. It's not just that we have confidence to speak freely and frankly to God. We also have somebody doing the talking for us. We have an advocate. Verse 21, we have a great priest over the house of God. We have Jesus as our priest. If we have Jesus as our priest, we have no need for any other. The Lord Jesus himself speaks a good word in heaven for us. So let's be clear. Before the throne of God above, you have every right to speak. You can speak boldly and clearly and directly. And you also know that you have someone speaking for you. You have an advocate, a great priest. Well, given this knowledge, what should we do? Should we just sit around? Lean back in our intellectual armchair and rest? No. We should draw near, hold fast, and consider how. Draw near, verse 22. We should draw near, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we're to draw near with a true heart, with our hearts and our bodies purified. Draw near. Think about it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 20, our author is going to remind us that the Hebrews were told, stay away. Don't get near God, lest you die. But here the exhortation is, draw near. Come close. We're told to draw near with a true or a sincere heart. Well, how do we get these new hearts? Where do they come from? The Lord himself must give us new hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We have new hearts Because God has worked new hearts in us so that we may draw near to him. So let us draw near. And notice that we can have new hearts because we have been prepared. We've been appropriately prepared to draw near. Uh, In Exodus chapter 29, when the Lord is preparing Aaron and his sons to appear Before him, the Lord instructs Moses to wash them with water. Exodus chapter 29, verse 4. And it's not just that they need to be washed with water. The Lord tells Moses to take blood 
from the altar and to sprinkle Aaron and his garments and Aaron's sons and their garments. Uh, Exodus chapter 29, verse 21. So like Aaron and his sons, we have been prepared by the Lord to enter into his presence. So let us draw near. But whereas Moses and Aaron were, were, were prepared, but Aaron and his sons were prepared by Moses to enter an earthly tabernacle, we have been prepared by the Lord God himself to enter heaven itself. So when, when we're discouraged, when we're worried, When we're concerned, we need to be reminded that we have been prepared by the Lord to draw near to him. Now, I don't know about you, but when we lack confidence, we usually think that we have done something that disqualifies us or we lack the necessary qualifications. And notice how verse 22 addresses both these concerns. Sure, we have done bad things and we have disqualified ourselves. But look at verse 22. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sure, we've done things that have disqualified us. But the Lord has made everything right. He's cleaned it all up. Perhaps we don't think that, that we have the right standing. To be received by the Lord. We're not prepared for entrance into the holy places. But even here. If you look down again. Our bodies washed. Verse 22. Our bodies washed. With pure water. God has done great work in us. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Giving us new. Sincere hearts. So that we trust. In the Lord Jesus. And we've even been publicly marked in our baptisms with water, a visible external sign of the internal work, the inner work that God has done in our hearts. So draw near, draw near to the Lord. Let us pray to him. Let us rest in him. And let us set our affection on him. Draw near. But also, let us hold fast. Verse 23. Notice that here we're told to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. Philip Hughes, in his marvelous commentary on the book of Hebrews, quotes at this point, He quotes Thomas Aquinas commenting on Romans 10.10. Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And in commenting on Romans 10.10, Aquinas says, It is not sufficient to have hope in the heart, but it must also be confessed with the mouth. Think about it. Think about something that you're secretly hoping for, but then you publicly confess it and makes such a difference, doesn't it? 
You're, you're thinking that if you're offered that job, that, that you'll take it. But then you start telling people, I hope I get that job. It's very different, isn't it? You're, you're secretly, you've secretly decided that you're willing to marry him if he asks you. But then you start telling your friends that you hope you marry him. A hope confessed is a stronger, deeper hope. So let us publicly, clearly, and openly confess the hope that we have in the Lord. It sets the right tone with believers and with unbelievers. And let us, let's do it without wavering, verse 23. Let's have a constant testimony to the Lord's goodness in happy times and on unhappy times. And let us set our hearts on heaven. Now, there are some people in the congregation who have a happy-go-lucky disposition. But notice the reason for our hope is not in us. The reason for our hope, verse 23, is the Lord. He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Without the Lord, we would have no hope. Without the Lord, what would we confess? But because we have the Lord, we can confess, we can speak publicly and openly about his kindness to us, his goodness to us, and the future expectation of certain yet unseen rewards. He is faithful. He will surely do it. So, hold fast. Finally, consider how. That's verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider thoughtfully and carefully how to encourage each other, how to spur one another on, how to comfort one another, how to love one another. Here's a test. To what do we apply focused mental effort? To what do we say, quiet, I need to focus? If you're like me, then you'll be honest and say that it's rare that you apply 100% of your mental activity to saying things like, how can I encourage him to better love his wife? How can I support her in her dedicated service to the church? But friends, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Our author then turns in verse 25, he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now, now notice that the author 
connects meeting together as a church with encouraging one another. Let's not neglect meeting with each other. Instead, let us encourage one another. We should think about meeting together as a body of believers the way that John Wesley talked. He said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And he's right. And it's no surprise that 2,000 years ago, the habit of some, verse 25, was to avoid corporate worship. After all, it's the habit of some today. Right? And no wonder, as John Calvin said, there is so much peevishness in almost everyone that individuals, if they could, would gladly make their own churches for themselves. We're a motley bunch. There are things that you do not like about me. And guess what? There are things that I don't like about me either. You didn't expect that, did you? (laughs) But there are things that you don't like about you. And there are things that I don't like about you. But we're in this together. This is our family. And, And let's be honest, getting together can be hard work. Just coming to church can be hard work. Especially if you have young children. Or if you're old. And walking anywhere is difficult and painful. Having a fellowship meal after church can be very difficult. Especially if you have young children. Especially if you're old. And walking anywhere is difficult and painful. But how else... Are we going to encourage one another unless we meet together, unless we spend time together? So let us consider how to stir up one another, how to encourage one another and support one another. And let us be faithful in attending public worship. If you are feeling lonely and excluded, go to church. If Sunday's weather is glorious after days and days of rain, go to church. If you're sluggish in your Christian walk, you should be all the more diligent in your church attendance. If you have trouble fighting the devil by yourself, You should draw near to God's people. And then at the very end, our author adds, verse 25, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, what does he mean here? I think he means that we ought to have a heavenly perspective on love and good works and gathering together. About this heavenly perspective, Gerhardus Voss writes, The Christian lives with his heavenly destiny ever in full view. The center of gravity of his consciousness lies not in the present, 
but in the future. That's how we should think. One day, we will hear myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of angels. So that when they move, the rushing of their wings sounds like mighty waters. And we will hear them say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. One day we will hear a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Feel that in your heart. Believe that with your mind. Confess it with your mouth. This worship service is a foretaste of heaven. The meal that we are about to eat, the Lord's Supper, it is a foretaste of the marriage feast of the Lamb. The people around you will be around you forever. So let us consider now how to stir up one another to love and good works. Consider how. One conclusion, let me remind us of what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the 13th verse, Paul writes, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And we see in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 to 25, this same pattern of faith, hope, and love. Verse 22, draw near in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, hold fast the confession of hope. Verse 24, consider how to stir up one another in love. And we can say, like the Apostle Paul, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us with an everlasting, always and forever love. That we have hope of eternal life. And we can stand in faith with a true heart because we have Jesus, our great priest, over the house of God. Oh, Lord, work in us that which is pleasing to you. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen.